The Vulture TV podcast is sponsored by Warby Parker. Glasses should not cost as much as an iPhone. Warby Parker's prescription glasses start at $95, and that includes the prescription lenses. Plus, you can try your frames on at home before you buy. Go to warbyparker.com vulture to choose your five free home try-on frames. You'll get free three-day shipping on your final frame choice. That's warbyparker.com vulture. The following podcast contains spoilers. Check the episode description to see the exact times of the segments that contain spoilers. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to the Vulture TV Podcast. I'm columnist Margaret Lyons, and I'm here with critic Matt Zoller-Seitz. Our faithful gazelle is on the road this week. (laughs) Before we get started, we have a quick item of business. I want to ask a small favor for our faithful listeners. Here at Panoply, we're trying to learn more about our podcast fans. We want you to tell us about the podcasts you enjoy and how often you listen to them. So we created a survey that takes just a couple of minutes to complete. If you fill it out, you'll help Panoply to make great podcasts about the things you love and the things you didn't even know you loved. To fill out the survey, just go to panoply.fm survey, or you can click the link we've provided in the show notes for this episode. That's panoply.fm survey, or click the link in the show notes. So today in the show, we're going to talk about Rectify, Masters of Sex, and of course, True Detective. But first, we thought we'd talk a little bit about one of the new things I think that's happening for TV now, which is the capacity to marathon shows. Yes. And sometimes it can be great, and sometimes it can be less great. Yeah, it used to be that you could do that with DVDs, or you could do it more recently with streaming with seasons that were six months old or a year old or whatever. But now they're putting them up particularly with Netflix and Amazon and some of those streaming services, they're putting entire seasons up at once. So you kind of are almost encouraged to binge watch these things now. Like, it doesn't make any sense to say, like, well, I've watched the first episode and I'm going to wait a week to watch the (laughs) second one. It doesn't, you know, you just, why not go ahead and eat the entire bag of chips? I feel like with DVDs, there was at least the... uh you had to change the DVD eventually. Yes. Right? And so that would just like immediately break your sort of couch coma or wherever you were like hold up. It gave you a moment has a moment's hesitation. It was like, are you sure you want to like, continue as you're fumbling, on this road? You're just like, oh, wow. Is this really DVD four of seven? Like, am I? Okay. Like, and there's that lovely moment when you reach like you've got a box set and it's one of those like gatefold type yeah. things where you reach the last one and you take out the last disc and you put it in. You realize, oh, my God, that's the last disc. You know, it's like it's 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 almost ceremonial. Oh, I remember. I think it must have been Battlestar Galactica. I was catching up. I had seen all of it, but I was writing something. And then I crazy binged all the way through it. And then I was like, oh, one more disc. But it was just special features. And I was like so bereft. (laughs) I just hadn't realized that the end was the end. I was like, oh, I can't wait one more. And I was like, no, (laughs) no, no. Now it's just like. Making of footage, which was a real there's, letdown. There's another thing that's ha- that happens when you watch, when you stream shows in that way, especially the way that Netflix has set up the viewing experience, which is on Amazon, you watch one episode at a time, and you have yeah, to make a decision. Keep, I do feel like Amazon's user design for that is actually crummy, because it is a little bit non-intuitive of how exactly the next episode gets surfaced. Right, that's true. However, I will say that it preserves the idea of an episode as a discrete experience, which I, I appreciate I guess you would say from an aesthetic standpoint, because these things are intended as chapters or pieces of a whole. And and when you're watching an entire season of a show on Netflix, it's just powering you through it. Like it's sort of like 
you're eating, you know, you're eating in a restaurant and they're refilling your wine glass when it's half empty. You know, I mean, it's like you don't have a chance. You, it's all, it's already up there on screen. It's like your next episode will start in eight seconds. You're like, oh, all right. I mean, it's yeah. also like when TNT marathons Law and Orders and the new one starts as the credits for the previous one are still rolling. Yeah. The credits just get scooched down. And you're like, well, nothing really ended. <laughs> no. I shall continue ignoring the rest of my life. And- well, and it's a different way to watch things. And it does contribute to this thing that, you know, people who make television often, I mean, and I've been hearing this ever since I've been covering TV, this idea, we're not making a TV show, we're making an eight-hour movie or a 13-hour movie or a 22-hour movie or whatever. And in some cases, it does feel like it's true. But it is some, one that's uh, – if it is a 22-hour movie, it's one that's usually broken into 22-hour chunks or 22-half-hour <laughs> yeah. chunks or whatever. And when you watch it online, it does feel like one continuous, ongoing movie. But it deprives you of that, that sort of breathing space. And I do appreciate that breathing space. And I especially appreciate the closing credits, the way a lot of cable shows will do their closing credits, where they choose exactly the right point to end. And then they fade to black or they cut to black. And then they roll the credits over a piece of music. And occasionally no music at all if it's a really intense episode. And they let you sit with it. And you have 30 seconds, 45 seconds to sit with it and think about what you've just seen. And I like that. And it is sort of like the experience in a way that's almost more like a movie than the continuous experience. Like when you're in a theater, I went to see Goodfellas with my daughter uh, on the big screen. It was her first time seeing it on the big screen, my first time, and like probably, I guess, since the last time they released it. And uh, everybody started to get up, and she did too. And I said, I, I, I need to sit here. I need to sit through the entire credits. I just need to sit through the entire credits. Some movies do that to you, and I think some shows do too. Masters of Sex is a show that I like to sit with it. I also think... Some shows benefit from the marathon. Like, for example, House of Cards, I think. Yeah. I think if you watch each chapter of House of Cards on its own, it becomes sort of clear exactly what all the shortcomings are of the show. (laughs) Yeah, you don't have as much time to think. Right, and I think if that had aired weekly the way a prestige cable drama does, it's just it can't hold up to that kind of scrutiny, that kind of, like, close examination. Even though there are things about House of Cards that we both really like, I feel like that's a show that really benefits from watch all of it as fast as you can and as long a sitting as possible and just, like, go along for the ride without having that weekly, like, examination period or even the 45 seconds to sit there and compose yourself that we would all take after, like, a Mad Men, for example. Yes, Um, yes. In fact, I would say that shows, particularly shows that have a very strong action or adventure component like a like a 24 or a Lost uh, would would hugely benefit plausibility-wise from being binged. You know, cuz you wouldn't you wouldn't be thinking like what's all that crap with Kim being chased by a cougar. <laughs> you know, you're not you know, it would be ridiculous and you would laugh at it, but you would quickly get over it. Yeah. Whereas if you have, you know, 6 days to think about it, you're like that was really dumb. That idea was super true for me when I was rewatching Friday Night Lights. Because when I first watched Friday Night Lights during its traditional broadcast, season two with the whole Landry, the murders, it was excruciating. And especially because every week after the episode, all of, you know, the dozens of Friday Night Lights watchers uh, and I, we (laughs) would... All eight of us, as I like to say. At our lunch table. um, (laughs) You know, you couldn't help but really focus on this because it was such a weird part of the show. And then upon rewatching it, and certainly watching several episodes at once, it feels so much more minor and so much like less of a travel it's still not my favorite storyline but it feels like it resolves actually pretty quickly and the percentage of the episode that's consumed by that feels lower like if i had guessed you know how much screen time did this have uh, i think week to week i guessed i would have guessed it at a lot higher and and watching it all at once it's much more part of like an ebb and a flow and it doesn't feel so 
consuming. It's not a deal breaker. Yeah. Do you think there's a difference for comedies if there's a good or bad way to marathon comedy watching? Well, I don't know. I mean, I can tell you that we're watching Seinfeld in my house right now because of this Hulu thing. And I don't enjoy them less for watching four or five in a row, Sure, I must say. And and in fact, there is a cumulative effect that is almost like, have you ever seen those Seinfeld bloopers? Seinfeld bloopers, I think, are the greatest bloopers in the history of bloopers because it shows you what it must have been like to work on that show. And that is you've got four main people who are among the funniest people who have ever lived. And they are making the other three crack up. And they must have ex- expended like millions of feet of film <laughs> making the show because just to get one take where, where all four of them weren't cracking up because they're all so funny. And that's the experience that I have watching Seinfeld at home because it's just my sides actually hurt after a while because it's just so much ridiculous silliness <laughs> in such a short space. I think twenty I think twenty two, twenty three minutes at a time is maybe the most medically wise dose of Seinfeld for me. Yeah. You know? I feel like if I marathon a comedy, it takes on that thing of like, you know when you're reading a book and you really like it and you get off the subway but you're like narrating your life in the voice of the narrator of the book you're reading. Yes, yes. Like yes, that feeling yes. of just sort of weird like, oh, this is how I would be in that book and you sort of think about it that way. I like threw my back out <laughs> two years ago, like a <laughs> crusty old lady that I am. And I wound up watching like I guess a million hours of Frasier and it was like I was dreaming in Frasier. It totally took over my brain and the way I was framing things. A similar thing happened when I first got the DVDs of Sports Night. I was just like, I'm in full Sorkin talk. Like, I can't escape it. Yeah. I just watched all 49 episodes, like, in a row. As often as it can be sort of a downfall for a drama, I think for a comedy, marathoning is almost always going to help codify the voice and, and sort of the characterizations within that comedy. It definitely does, and especially because I think as a rule, comedies tend to be tighter and more focused than dramas. Like by their very nature, there's not going to be as many digressions because it's going to kill the funny. I find it kind of interesting to think about what streaming is doing to the way that we think about TV shows, you know, the way that we interact with TV shows, because television used to be a thing you went to, like, what time is this show on? What day is it on? I'm going to sit down and watch it, and if you miss it, it's three weeks to six months before you have another shot at it again. But now it's available to you not only in its discrete chunks, but all as an entity. Like, you could watch a season or two seasons of a show over the course of two days, and that turns it almost into, like, a utility. It's like we have, you know, we have running water, we have electricity, <laughs> we have gas, and we have Seinfeld, you know? <laughs> and I wonder if we're maybe going to get to a point where we sort of devalue the fact that these are artistic objects that are made by people. Like we start to view them as like we would food in our pantry or something like that, you know? Wow, that's pretty dark, dude. I know. It's pretty grim. Speaking of marathoning, I actually was catching up on the first show we're going to talk about today, Rectify. Uh, I had seen, I thought most of it. It turned out I had seen all of it. You know, I knew we were going to talk about it today, so I wanted a quick refresher course, and I wound up watching all of season two over the weekend. I love this show, but I cannot recommend that as a method for consuming Rectify. I would really encourage you to pace yourself. Yeah, I would agree. As much as I like it, I would agree that that's not the best way to watch it, and it's because of the way the story is told. They'll spend an entire season on covering six days, and there will be whole episodes where it's like half of a day. And, like, scenes will go on for minutes at a time, and they're real time. Like, we're not—it's not like a montage of what happened that's, that afternoon. You're, like, sitting in the kitchen with two people as they talk. And I don't know if I've really watched more than one or two episodes of the show at a time like the way you have. Like, I have paced myself, but I would imagine that it's a bit like going over to somebody's house for the weekend— 
and maybe if you love everything about them, that's a wonderful experience. But it can, you know, it can get pretty intense, probably. So one of the things I like about the show is how strong it is on atmosphere, because I think a lot of the show is very designed to be sort of confusing and confounding. And the dialogue is always very, no one tells candid truth. Right. No. It's very rare for someone to just come out and say it. It's not a show that does that. And sometimes they do. And then they double back and contradict themselves. Right. And, and, you know, certainly on the last season finale where we had this seeming confession, I was also like, but no. Right. I like, didn't feel like that was really a confession, but we'll get to that. Uh, yeah. Right. So it, it, it's a show where you don't always know what is happening, but you kind of always know how. Right. Like I always yeah. know where it's extremely driven by place. I think you can sort of like smell the food in the kitchen and you can feel the humidity and the bogs. And, you know, you're just like this close to slapping the mosquitoes that you can hear on the show. I think it's so driven by that sense of of like a real like sense, like you feel the show. Watching a lot of it at once is very immersive, but the opacity of the dialogue does become more frustrating, I would say. How so? You know, we talked about how like. One of the best ways to watch an action-driven or cliffhanger-driven show is going to be all at once because it gets exciting. Yeah. And I think the the sort of contrapositive of that is true, too, where we have, you know, the worst way to watch an opaque show, right? Like, right. if there's no cliffhangers, then don't marathon it because we're just getting a lot of, like, moody, confusing poetry. And individually, those moods are interesting. But on the whole, it just becomes, like, someone do something! Oh, my yeah. God! Oh, my God! Can we just, like, talk can we, like I can't handle this, right? The yeah, way that yeah. like you could talk to like a artsy fartsy friend or whatever for like twenty five minutes, but you wouldn't want to drive cross country with them. <laughs> well, depends on the friend for me, <laughs> yeah. but uh, yeah, no, I can see that. But I, I, I mostly I just appreciate how different the show is from almost any other show. Like in terms of its rhythm, the thing, the, the same things that you're talking about. I like, I like that it takes its time. I like that it stretches out time. In the way that it does, it's it's very unusual in a way. It's sort of like it's not quite real time, but there are points where it gets fairly close to that or feels like it is. And also something really interesting has happened in, at the end of season two and I think as we're going into this third season. And I wrote a little bit about this, which is that this this is a show that is about a guy who did almost 20 years in prison for a rape and murder and he gets out on a technicality and nobody – seriously discusses whether he did it. Like, there are people who have an opinion on whether he did it, but that's not what the show is about. It's about people's reactions to him and his reaction to being out of prison and all of these other sort of larger cosmic philosophical issues. But I feel like at a certain point they must have looked at that and said, okay, that was an interesting experiment, and I'm glad we did it, but at a certain point we're going to have to address whether or not he's actually guilty of these crimes. Like, I feel like that's where we're heading, and I don't know if they're going to be too literal about that like if it's going to be I, I hope it doesn't turn into a diddy or didn't he show because yeah. you know that would be way less interesting than what they've given us but at a certain point like it becomes unrealistic that everybody in his world would be walking around this like it's a sinkhole you know what i mean mm-hmm. so so and that's what i feel like they're going for and i felt like his um quote unquote confession in the debrief i didn't feel like that was really a confession that was, this is just my reaction okay i'm not saying that this is like any kind of definitive reading but so we're talking about the season 2 finale where daniel as part of a new plea deal has to give a debrief right and yeah and essentially they want him to as a condition of his parole and which which i believe one of the stipulations is that he's going to have to leave the town or the yeah, state his and never banishment. come back 
Essentially, and in order to get this and not go back to prison ever. Right, and so for the case to be finally closed, period. Right, and also because Fox wants this closure, too, mm-hmm. for political reasons. He's gonna, they want him to say this and confess, and he takes the opportunity to basically say, and here's what I got from it, which was he's not, he didn't do the rape, that it was basically a loss of consent due to drug use that put her in that situation, and he witnessed it from afar. And as for the commission of the murder, I felt like they left that unclear. And then at the beginning of this season, Falk says he confessed to the murder as if he's saying he said he did the murder. But I got in the debrief that he he said, I confessed to the murder after they held me for a long time with no representation. I just wanted to go home and all that stuff. I didn't get anything in there that was definitive him saying, yes, I killed her. Did he kill her or not? Because the language confused me. Yeah, I think the way it and the way it plays out, like especially the way Daniel describes things can be so vague and so odd. I don't think he killed her. But I also... I don't think he did. And and also, there's something about the way he repeats the scenario that sounds like, you know, when somebody is being yelled at and they reply something along along the lines of, yes, you're absolutely right. I took the money. Oh, I am you the know? worst girlfriend in the whole world. Right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> that, see, that's what I felt. That's what I felt was happening in that scene, that he wasn't saying, yes, factually, everything you say happened, happened. It was, here is what I confess to. Yeah. I, I mean, I, you know, that, I mean, that, I that sounds that like clear. hair splitting, but that's <clears throat> no, what I got No, I think that's it. what's interesting about that scene, right? And yeah. we're both people who've watched a tremendous amount of cop confession kind of things. And I think to have any kind of new spin on that is pretty impressive. <laughs> and it's a relief to see someone have a sort of fresh take, especially because I think on television in particular, we really love the cop finally getting the confession out of someone, right? That, yeah. That's like a very like romantic counter like like cross-examination moment when in yeah. life we know that that it's actually extremely easy to coerce confessions and many people who are not guilty of crimes wind up confessing to them well yeah and it's uh, like is this an i killed her or is this a um you want me to say that i killed her fine i killed her yeah you I know mean, like that's the, that's staring, the distinction i feel like we're looking at here especially as he's staring down you know one of the things on the table is a retrial one of the things is pleading guilty and going back to prison for five more years which you know of course it, it's hard to imagine anyone agreeing to that right uh you know and he also daniel feels a lot of guilt about sort of the effects that that his trial and incarceration have had on his family yeah you know we see this sort of black hole like sucking everything every piece of joy of his family life into it and i think he's he feels like the easiest thing to do is make it stop the, right. the best thing i can do is make this stop and sort of whatever it takes i'm willing to do just to close this chapter yeah it's a really tough show i mean i'm not surprised that it's not like a huge hit you know <laughs> i mean it's like it's really like and even when i tell people I'll say, oh, what should I watch? And I say, oh, well, there's a really good show called Rectify. Oh, I've heard of that. What's that about? And then I tell them and I can see the blood start to drain <laughs> from their face. And I know that they're never going to watch this show. It's not light viewing. It's, it's not, not light you know, viewing. It's not escapist. It's not even like – and I find it funny. I think there's humor in the show, but it's it's a very particular, very peculiar kind of humor. And the overall mood, I wouldn't say it's gloomy, but it's very introspective. Maybe that's not for everybody. I don't know. But I like it. And I also like how it's kind of like – I call it, you know, theater cinema. You know, it's very cinematic in the way that it's shot. It's got great attention paid to the look and the sound of things and, like, what life act, what it actually feels like to be alive in this particular place, like the birds, the wind through the trees, the sunlight, the way sunlight looks different when you're outside in a 
park versus when it's coming through the curtains, you know, in a bedroom or something. They, they pay incredibly close attention to these little things. And I feel like it's a very life-affirming show despite its subject matter. But it's also about a guy who did uh, almost 20 years for rape and murder. <laughs> you know, so there's your contradiction. And also, or not. And a, you know. and a lot of that time served was in solitary confinement. That's right. Which is another important aspect, I think, when we... A question I often have when I watch a show is, how weird was Daniel before? Because he's kind of yeah. a weird guy. He is a weird guy. But how much of that is a result of surviving what I would consider torture, of being in solitary confinement for 20 years? The crime in question was committed when Daniel was like 16 or something, yeah, right? Yeah, so he's a teenager, yeah. What was he like before that? Was he a weird kid? Like, how does that sort of, the story of Daniel... What did that look like before? Right. Because we know his family members. We know his mom. We know his sister. We know his brothers. We know his step-siblings. You know, I think the show winds up being sort of political just because it has an attitude that, like, this is a really horrific way to treat anyone, even someone yeah. who is, you know, the worst among us. And the exquisite attention that it pays to things like sunlight and bird songs and things, those tend to be in the scenes where it's centered on Daniel. Right. Because those are the things he didn't experience. And there's actually this lovely scene... I think it's in an upcoming episode where he's in a park and he's appreciating being outdoors, like being able to read a book outdoors. Yeah, That's or when a he's in bed with Tawny him. talking about feeling morning sunlight. Oh, my God. Head. And the sunlight in that uh, scene is unbelievably beautiful. The lighting design in that show is extraordinary. I also feel like you can always tell what temperature it is. Yeah, that's I right? hadn't thought of that, but that's true. <laughs> like you, I just I feel like there are all these really, in addition to very poetic, I think very lovely dialogue, it's very stylized dialogue like we were talking about last week about yeah. how when it's done well, that can really be moving and, and, and evocative. But I think there's this like really sweet, subtle attention to detail, like... There's a scene where Tawny, who is the sort of like blonde religious, like soon to be ex-wife of our like yeah. nasty preacher character, she's had a really bad day. I think she has had a miscarriage. She and her husband are on the outs. She feels very lost and and scared. And she's going to bed and she like has just taken a shower. We can see like her hair is wet and she's in like clean pajamas and like getting in like a freshly made bed. And it's just this moment of like, oh. I know what the, like that is so precise and just the way it looks and the way she's yes. behaving of like that feeling of when you've had a really bad day and then you like you take a shower at night, you know, yes, and, yes, like, yes. that that whole way that like that day is part of like, how am I going to sleep tonight? This is the only way for me to like get my head screwed on straight and just like the weird feeling of of grief that happens in that moment and yeah. just seeing her and it's not even acknowledged they're like there's another conversation happening but just looking at the sort of choices about like what is she wearing where in the house are they how is her hair right like all those little choices that that really add so much to what the scene's about what she's feeling well and that and that thing that i was mentioning earlier this idea of like theater cinema it's i mean that in the sense that like in a play the actors and the dialogue are central. and But it's not just we're watching people talk to each other and that's all that's going on. There's a lot happening visually and in terms of sound and occasionally music as well. But this, the main attraction is still people interacting. And, and not just that, because every show gives us that to some degree. But the way that in, a, in real life, when you're having a long conversation with somebody that has some fairly heavy-duty emotional content you'll feel a range of different modes. Like you might start out at one emotional temperature and then you shift into another and then yet another and then another. And by the end, like five, six minutes in, you're in a completely different place than when you started. And 
TV shows generally, and I would say movies as well, are in such a hurry. They're so scared, 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 scared of losing our attention that they rush through things. And they jump and they just, it's like, just give me the bullet points. <laughs> they give you the emotional bullet points of a scene. And they don't give you those moments of transition where you feel, oh, my God, he had it and then he lost it. You know, like that kind of a moment. Or mm-hmm. like, oh, there's hope for this couple. Maybe, maybe there's not. Oh, my God, there's no hope. Wait a second. There's hope again. Ooh, hope. You know, like you can see that. You can almost like draw it on a graph or a chart or something. And that's something you get every time I go to the theater, I get that. Even if it's not a particularly good play, I get that. And movies and television shows don't give me that nearly as often as I would like. But Rectify does. The show we're talking about is Rectify, and it airs on the Sundance Channel Thursdays at 10 p.m. When we come back, we're going to be talking about Masters of Sex and True Detective. But first, a word from our sponsors. The Vulture TV podcast is sponsored by Warby Parker. Glasses should not cost as much as an iPhone. Warby Parker's prescription glasses start at just $95, and that includes prescription lenses. Plus, when you buy glasses from Warby Parker, you're contributing to a charitable cause. For every pair of glasses sold, Warby Parker distributes a pair of glasses to someone in need. If you are in the market for new glasses, there are two competing but equally valid theories for what shape you should buy. What would those be? One is to pick glasses frames that are the same shape as your eyes. So if you have very round eyes, you'd want very round glasses. If you have sort of narrower eyes, you'd want a more narrow frame. But my personal theory, which is totally borne out in the good-looking faces of many of my friends, is (laughs) you should buy glasses in the shape that's the opposite of the shape of your face. For example, I have a very round face, which is why I wear very square glasses. If you have a very long face, you want to wear very wide glasses. If you have a square, tough jawline, you can get away with like those real Harry Pottery owl glasses, right? <laughs> Warby Parker has glasses in all different frame shapes to fit all different face shapes. Warby Parker makes buying glasses online easy and risk-free. Their home try-on program allows you to order five pairs of glasses to be shipped directly to your home. That way you can try them on in the comfort of your own apartment and get some feedback from friends or family before you choose your glasses. You can keep the frames to try on for five days before sending them back for free. Go to warbyparker.com vulture to choose your five free home try-on frames. That's warbyparker.com vulture. So Masters of Sex returned for its third season this week. We've jumped pretty far ahead in time from where we were when the show began. I think we're like 13 years after the pilot, basically. We finally get the sort of, after all of this work, you know, the first edition of their first book is out. How yes. did you like the season premiere? I liked it pretty well. I liked the show really well. There are times when I wish it were great as opposed to really, really, really good. But I love, I love the atmosphere of it and I love the issues of it. And most of all, I love these characters. And I thought this episode... I almost feel reluctant to discuss this first one because I feel like, the, you know, I've seen the next one and the next one continues so effortlessly off of the premiere that it feels like it's part one and part two to me. But this one does a really good job of moving the story ahead. And we mention Mad Men like every friggin' week, but let's be, <laughs> on, let's be honest, this show would not exist if not for Mad Men. It's that period. It's sort of got some of, this, some of the same storytelling techniques as Mad Men, but... Jumping forward in time in historical drama is always really tricky, and I feel like they did a pretty good job with it. I don't know. What do you think? I am a big fan of the show, but I think one of the things they struggle with is establishing time. It's weird to watch the kid characters be now, you know, they were 
like in sixth grade or something and now they're <laughs> 19 whatever it is like you know we're jumping right. we're having like new actors play these like much more adult teen characters yeah. but then you know Lizzie Kaplan looks exactly the same to me yeah so, that's a little weird but also to be fair though I think wasn't Bobby Draper still seven when Mad Men ended <laughs> yeah but I think Mad Men labored to show the passage of time in a lot of other they ways did. That I, really they clearly... did. I'm exaggerating yeah. they were excellent at it except for Bobby Draper it. which is like uh, ugh yeah yeah we'll never get over but I think for Masters of Sex the idea that we're going to be so clued in for example by like the shape of bras you know, it's like, well, it's clearly now later because torpedo bras are out and, and, and round cup is in. It's like I actually don't have a strong enough year to year association with those kinds of things. And I, I'm positive that the show is getting them right. But I yeah. don't think it's necessarily reading to me as an audience member how much time is passing until all the characters are like, it's been this many years. And it's like, wait, is that her kid? How did like, oh, they grew up so fast. But like, no. 13 years have elapsed in the course of this show. Yeah. Right? So we have 13 years passing in Masters of Sex. We have six months passing in Orange is the New Black. We have five days passing in Rectify, right? Yeah. So, like, it's hard, I think, for shows to consistently establish how much time is passing. And on a show where that's really essential, like Masters of Sex, I feel like we're maybe – it's a little flabby for me. Yeah. It's, it, I guess it does what it needs to do. I, I would say it's more graceful than some. My beef is that – if all of this time has passed, why doesn't anything feel different, right? So the interactions between Jenny, like Ginny seems the same, Bill seems the same, Libby seems the same. It's like, oh, Libby's like quiet resignation. It's like, yeah, <laughs> right. the same as it was, right? And so all of this time has passed. The kids are grown. Everyone's having sex, like Vietnam, blah, blah, blah. But what the actual conversations are feel like they could have happened 12 years ago. Yeah, that's that's one area in which I do think that they struggle. That's that's true. I think a, another area in which they struggle is integrating the real biographies of these characters with the things that they need to do dramatically. And and there I was a little thrown by that disclaimer. That tag at the end. At the end where it's like uh, Masters and Johnson are real characters with their kids. We just made them up. <laughs> you know. <laughs> and Mad Men, they didn't really have to worry about that. All the main characters were fictional and they took some liberties, like they had Don Draper inventing, you know, the slogan for Lucky Strike and an ad for Coca-Cola, and they did a lot of that kind of stuff on the advertising end. But aside from that, you know, they didn't have Don Draper saving Sammy Davis Jr.'s marriage or anything like that. You know, like, <laughs> would but you here. Prefer Masters and, <laughs> would you prefer the show to be more historically accurate, or do you not No, care? I feel like, you know, my solution to these kind of problems is just go ahead and change their names. You know, I mean, I know that that this is the real Masters and Johnson. That's a really big selling point for the show, clearly. And, you know, the show is called Masters of Sex, right? But still, the second time we've mentioned Goodfellas in the show, that's that's based on real people. And none of the, they changed all the names. To be clear, it's the second time you've mentioned Goodfellas. <laughs> <laughs> it's fresh in my mind. But, yeah, I, mean, but, I think you we know, could have... There could be like a oh, it's based on Masters and Johnson, right? I mean, you it's know, like there's Masters and Johnson. Why not? And, and then, and then you yeah. don't have to worry about. It. You could change whatever you want once you've done that. Yeah. You know, I mean, like the ad agency on Mad Men wasn't a real ad agency. You can do, you can, you could take all kinds of liberties. But, and I don't think they've done anything really egregious at this point. Although I am curious to know if Virginia Johnson actually did get pregnant by him because I could I didn't find anything in the historical record to suggest that she did but you know again it's like are we dealing with fiction or drama am I just getting hung up on this and there's no good reason to I don't know my favorite parts of the show are so rarely about Masters and Johnson you know like in season one it was definitely Allison Janney's character and, and yeah. sort of her discovery that like oh wait like other people have 
like a healthy sexuality and it's possible to enjoy sex and I've never like that's totally foreign to me and then the sort of dawning realization that well part of that is that you know I grew up in a very repressive culture and part of that is my husband is gay and right. so the sort of ideal sexual compatibility that you would have in a long-term partnership you know is not available to me. Right. And I felt like that whole arc and then last season I really liked the sort of Betsy Brandt arc. I thought that was yeah. really emotional and and touching and special and and the kind of thing you don't see on other shows. And I feel like sometimes with with Virginia and Bill it's it is stuff that we see on other shows and they're like yeah. you know she's not his mistress but she's kind of his mistress and they're well, doing kind of research, interesting and they're, but they're not there's like, that moment in the premiere where his wife and and Virginia are in bed together and also another moment when they're in the kitchen, I think, and they're talking about him. And I was having flashbacks to Big Love. Mm-hmm. I felt like I was seeing like two wives of the same husband in a way. And I think the show is maybe encouraging us to think that way. First of all, that's who they they are. I mean, eventually yeah. Virginia and Bill do in real life, at least, marry 1970, each other. yeah. After um, he divorced his wife-wife, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think the term is first wife. Yeah, first wife, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not, once you're married, <laughs> well, well, that's what I. that's wife. why I say, because on this show, I really feel like he's got two wives at this point. Yeah. You I know? guess I wish that was played. I mean, he's having sex with both of them. Well, one of them now. Right, but he's not having sex no, with both of them. Yeah, so that's it, right, yeah. The idea that Virginia would be unable to talk to her daughter about sex and and contraception struck me as kind of phony baloney like that that didn't read to me the daughter kind of coming on to bill that didn't really read to me like that was a little weird i like the show a lot and i like the performances a lot but i sometimes feel like we're struggling to find this like central driving idea of what the show is asking and also i think it sometimes struggles with and i think every historical drama struggles with this to some degree which is showing you characters as they probably were and not superimposing modern day points of view on them and mm-hmm. and that's something where i think even the best historical dramas struggle with this and i think masters of sex struggles with it as well and there are moments where i sometimes hear these i look at these characters like lizzie kaplan looks like somebody that you could run into at a bar like right now like, you know, like they're not really making her look that 60s. And there are a lot of touches, a lot of production design touches on the show that feel period and others that don't feel period enough to me. And sometimes the way people talk, the way they comport themselves and the language they use doesn't feel quite right to me. And, and you know, part of it is things like where they they go right up to where they need to be and then they go a little too far. Like there's a line in this episode coming up where George says, I'm good enough to fuck but not to marry which is a perfectly fine line. And then he goes on to say, Jesus, I sound just like a mistress, don't I? And Masters of Sex does that kind of thing quite a bit, where it's like, you were fine. You didn't have to, you, <laughs> did, you, you we got it. You don't have to go any further. Like, you don't have to give us the subtext. We, we can handle that fine. They don't do it often enough to be really annoying, but they do do it. And also there are some times where just the characters don't, some of the interactions don't ring true. Some of the racial interactions didn't quite ring true to me. That was definitely a weak spot for me last season. Yeah, and I feel like I got to give them kudos for dealing with those issues in a much more direct way than Mad Men ever did, where it just seemed like they had like the white gloves on the entire time. But mm-hmm. um, but still, there was something a little felt a little bit off about it. But I do I love the characters and I love the performances and I, and Bill is just endlessly amusing to me because he's so he has no sense of humor at all and I, and I just love the idea that you know his version of warm is something that would be unforgivably cold for most people that 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 continues to amuse me at some point maybe it'll wear itself out but it hasn't yet I'm getting a little worn out on it are you I think that whole like 
he's a genius, but he's also a dick. It's like, uh, okay. I don't know. I guess I just feel like we have a lot of those stories. You know, and That was the original like, title, by the way. But maybe it's like, oh, but he really was. It's like, I don't care, right? Like, <laughs> I get it. You know, and then it's like, Genius oh. Dick was actually the, the pilot, the title of the like, pilot. Oh, and these beautiful women can't stop begging to fuck him. Like, <laughs> I guess they... I bet they could stop. I bet they could. Like, I don't know. I Jenny just, definitely is getting some Don Draper level action on this show. I got to say, like, she can't. <laughs> but you know, it's Lizzie Kaplan, so who can blame everyone? But it seems like she can't walk in the room without someone hurling themselves at her. Yeah, I just, I don't know. For a show that's so much about sex, it very rarely feels sexy. And that's partially because the sex is often in a scientific environment. It's not meant to be sexy. But I think the show, I don't always know what it, what its take is on like sexuality and, and attraction and and how the show sometimes I don't know exactly how the characters feel but I often feel like I don't know how the show feels about that. Well, I think once in, once in a while they <laughs> I was going to say hit a home run. Why the why the fuck not? Um, <laughs> <laughs> Get them all out, Matt. Let's why hear not? It. Why not? Okay. But yeah, no. I think I think some of the scenes work very, very well in that regard. And I thought that entire no touching montage, that like no sexual touching montage, and it keeps escalating and escalating until they're having sex again. I thought that was exceptionally well done. And there have been other scenes and moments and plot lines that I thought have been well done. And then there have been other ones where. It's verging a little bit on, you know, Cinemax after dark, you know, (laughs) and, you know, I guess that comes with the territory. I can't say anything without it sounding like a pun. I honestly didn't mean that. (laughs) Oh, God. All right. Let's see. One more. Make it a trend. Uh, You know, give me a minute. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) That counts. That was it. (laughs) That was it. Okay. Good night, everybody. Overall, it's a show I like a lot. It sounds like it's a show that you also like a lot. Yeah. It's a show I'm always curious to watch. I'm, I'm never... rooting for it. I'm yeah. always rooting for Like, even if an episode is not doing it for me, I'm rooting for it. Yeah. It's really intelligent and sensitive. And I also like that it's not mean to anyone. Mm-hmm. I really like that. Like, even the characters who are kind of miserable and mean to each other, you know, it, it could score easy laughs off a of bill and it never does. You know? Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and that's nice. I like that. I like that when a show does that. And there's no scapegoats. There's no, like, cheap, stupid villains or anything like that. That's that's refreshing. And, yeah, it could be better, but it's awfully, awfully good. <laughs> the show we're talking about is Masters of Sex. It airs on Showtime Sunday nights at 10 p.m. This week's episode of True Detective ended with a pretty epic shootout. Matt, what was your take? You know, it was well done, but uh, come on. What Come on, you, really? You well know? done in what sense? Well, technically well done. You know, it's exciting. It's crazy. It's bloody. It's chaotic. It goes on longer than you think it will. Like, as a freestanding action scene, there's not a whole lot that I can say against it. But I got to say, I thought that that long take last year, as well done as it was, was not my favorite bit of filmmaking on that show by a long shot because it did feel slightly extraneous. You know, like because of the screen time they gave it and how elaborately they photographed it. And I felt even more so about this one. Like how necessary was that really? There better be some repercussions. There better be some serious repercussions to this. And I always wondered why we didn't hear anything more about the whole scene in the housing project in the first season of True Detective after they concluded it. Like it just wasn't really important to the story. And this even more so. Like that's this was big. This is the kind of thing where it would be covered live probably this on national TV. This would be catastrophic TV. international news. This would be the front page of the news weeklies. It would be on the front page of every newspaper. It would be It would be the story of the week if this happened. Will they treat it that way? I don't know. I guess we'll see. I think a lot of us have been comparing it to that long shot because it also came at the end of episode four, four last right. season. I'm in the minority for actually not really caring that much about that shot. I'm much more concerned with what it's a shot of. And yes. 
And the truth is that, like, that storyline had nothing to do with what the actual real arc of True Detective turned out to be for that show. And so that whole, like, it's these drug dealers. It was just like, this is from a different show. Like, this whole, like, there's a biker gang, and this, like, this is the way drug is getting, drugs are getting trafficked. Like, had really so little, ultimately, to do yeah. with what I think of as significant in the story arc of that season that as much as I can respect the technical prowess of the filmmaking that happened, I wished that it had been filming something that mattered more to the show. Right. And so for this, you know, we've talked a little bit about how True Detective has been struggling to find emotional choices this season. And to have a, a massacre... And only one character whose name we know killed. Yeah, yeah. And even him, I'm, I don't remember what his name is. Right, right. Right. You know, that was a little frustrating. Also, you know, I hate to be pedantic about this kind of thing, but like these people would be better at shooting than that. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. Like Taylor Kitsch is a soldier. Yeah. And also like cops are required to take like marksmanship skills training. I found like some of that just to be like so like schlocky and so yeah, convenient, yeah. right? Well, and it like, feels a little movie, but to me, I would not slag on it in terms of the realism of it because one thing I know from talking to, like, relatives who have been police and in the military is when they're actually in that situation, the training doesn't seem to matter, and sometimes you can't at the side of a barn because there's just so much going on. So that didn't bother me that much. It I bugged don't know. me a lot, especially when we think of action sequences on, say, Breaking Bad. So this, to me, felt a lot like some of those big moments of Breaking Bad, or mostly just made me miss them, because I think Breaking Bad did know how to do this kind of, you know, just blowout. Hell breaks loose kind of stuff. Yeah, and just like, and the second you think it's over, it's not over, right? Like that kind of real sequence. And I think Breaking Bad is a show that always made emotional choices, right? Like that's something that's one of its real strengths. And I think for these kinds of action-y sequences, it was a show that almost never relied on coincidence. On the whole, it felt so much more purposeful, and this was like, oh, man, and then there's going to be, like, a bus and, like, protests. Yeah. Yeah, and then, like, another machine gun. And I was like, is there? Okay. okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I compared it to the look of it and the feel of it, not the quality necessarily, but uh, to a Michael Mann film. And and this sequence has definitely got, like, the bank robbery and heat written all over it, but the difference there is... There's a very clear narrative purpose to that sequence, you know, like as big and sort of like Hollywood spectacular as it is, like everything is leading to that point and everything else that happens in the film leads out of that point. Mm-hmm. And I'm very skeptical if they're going to pay the same kind of careful attention to this action scene on True Detective. Do you feel like everything was leading to this on True Detective? Not Well, I would say leading to the moment that causes the action scene to happen, yeah. But the action scene itself feels like all of a sudden we're in a speed three here, you know? Like, I, <laughs> I don't know. I'm just about ready to stop apologizing for the show, to be honest. I want it to be good. I really want it to be good. But um, it's just been disappointing me. It's like so tantalizingly not not there. And I feel like everybody's doing their job except the writer. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry to say that. <laughs> yeah. But everybody on the show is doing their job but the writer. Like, I don't blame the actors. I think the photography, the editing, the sound, the look and feel of it are really excellent. I mean, not anything you haven't seen before, but excellent for that kind of thing. But this story, like, I just don't know why Why do we care? Why does he care? Where is this going? And I don't feel that sense of anticipation that I did in the first season where where the hell is he going with this is sort of a positive value. You know what I mean? As opposed to... Yeah, I felt like as much as I was intrigued by aspects of the mystery for season one of Jew Detective, that was so the lowest on the list of things that I cared about. You know, if I would have totally have watched another 
tangent episode just of like Rust and Marty like farting around. Yeah. <laughs> because I found yeah. their interplay yeah. to be very interesting and I thought they both had interesting things to say about like what is the point of being a man? What is the point of being alive? What is justice? You know, and the way that they thought about it and the way they would answer those questions I, I found interesting. And I think and this season, I don't want to ask anyone those questions. Well, and there, and it's sorely. I think it's. I think it really misses a Woody Harrelson. It really, really needs a Woody Harrelson. Like literally having Woody Harrelson there would help tremendously. <laughs> but I'll settle for a Woody Harrelson type, like somebody who, you know, you can't. You have you have Kirk and Spock. You don't have a couple of Spocks. You know what I mean? <laughs> like like that's the beauty when they're driving in that car. That's where all those memes got started, where you could just put any sort of like ridiculous thing in the mouth of Rust Cole. And then you've got the same reaction shot of Marty going like, what the hell did you just say? I feel like Vince Vaughn in particular, we really need like a, a Marty like what? But because <laughs> <laughs> yes. his whole thing, like, I'm not going to do someone else's time. I was like, oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, first of all, lady, like run, like do not have a baby with that guy. He does not want to have a baby. No. Um, I mean, in terms of performance choices, I still find Vince Vaughn's choices to be weird. I forget the name of the actress who plays his wife. I find her performance choices to be very strange. And, like, their whole thing, I just don't give a shit. Yeah. Like, I actually, and I'm in the minority here, I think, but, like, I actually really like uh, Colin Farrell here. Like, I think... Oh, I like him, too. Like, I, you know, it's a lot of um, slack-jawed like astonishment is, like, his number one reaction phase. It's just, like, yes. constant slack-jawed astonishment. But, like, I think the sort of vibe he has is funny. He's like, we're going to get you some Pedialyte. It's like, yeah. okay. Like, this is a guy who knows how to drink. Right? And we have, like, moments where he's like, I'm a feminist, particularly in, like, the way I hate my body. Or, like, yeah. some line like that. Or, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Right? These, like, little moments. Like, I think there is, like a, like, a fun sort of, like, spark and jazz to that. I hate the parts with, like, his son and like all of that bullshit. That's like again, I see scenes like that, and I just think, who involved with this production is going through a divorce right now? <laughs> you know, the sort of dirty cop does dirty is like, Ugh, I'm not interested. Honestly, like the thing I like the most, uh, we didn't really get a lot of this episode is like the super fucked up mask stuff, right? Yes. It's like, give me that bird guy, like what's he doing, right? Like, right, right. Okay, drug dealers, blah blah blah. I was like. Who's wearing the bird it's mask? Like, well, and like, like in the fuck swing, like where is that? Like, <laughs> like, this is so, like, in the fuck swing. That's another memoir title for you. Yeah. <laughs> not for me. Uh, for one, Matt is not talking about me. Oh no no. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, wrong pronoun, people. <laughs> like last season, I think some of the occult stuff, and this this season with like the the weird like new ages. Like I I am I care so much more about that part of the story than the like. How are we going to move money through this kind of crime family? Oh, it's yeah. like, whatever. Seen, like, I just want the weird shit, right? Like, I, yeah, the yeah. last season of Two Detectives. Go full Lynch. Go ahead and yeah. go full Lynch. Yeah. Like, I feel like there were so many images last season that are still very haunting, very scary. And you think of, like, the guy with the gas mask and, and like, running over the hill in his underwear and, like, that kind of moment where you're like, ah, what? And, like, yeah, really, yeah. like, those being these, like, very shocking but also, like, uh, surreal. Yes. These images and, and, I am so much more curious about those parts of the show than I am about, like, there's going to be a billion guns and all these people are going to get murdered and then a building Well, what up. I was hoping like, was, if you're going to remind me periodically of Mulholland Drive or maybe Stanley Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut, like, just roll with that. Just go ahead and roll with that. Like you were saying, like, just be weird. Be weird. Be dreamlike. <laughs> be, you know, be Twin Peaks. Be whatever you're going to be because then at least there's going to be something really perverse and surprising about the show. I would like, say the you're most see surprising thing like, this episode was a freeze frame at the end. I love that. <laughs> I love that. I I thought uh, bring back the freeze frame. I, I thought says. for a second that my like playback had stalled. <laughs> and I was like, then what happens? And then the credits are like, 
Oh my gosh. Wait. That's a freeze frame. I did not that is I did not see that coming. That's it for this week's Vulture TV podcast. We've been doing this show for a few months and we love getting feedback from you. If there are any shows or topics you'd like to hear us discuss more, please let us know. You can email us any questions or comments at tvquestions at vulture.com. And if you're in the feedback mood, just a reminder that we're doing a listener survey right now. You can find that survey at panoply.fm slash survey. Our producer is Sarah Abdurrahman. Our senior producer is Laura Mayer. Andy Bowers is our executive producer. The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. If you like the show, please be sure to tell a friend and subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to leave us a rating or comment wherever you subscribe. I'm Margaret Lyons, and you can find me on Twitter at MarginCharge. Matt Zoller Sites, and you can find me on Twitter at Matt Zoller Sites, shockingly. Thanks for listening, and you'll hear us again next week.